You are listening to Pastor Fred Neal III of Harvest Community Church in Catani, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, No Place for Partiality, recorded on February the 12th, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Fred as he preaches. James is a great book. It's an interesting book. Hopefully you've been enjoying getting into it. I love that we're reading the whole chapter to get some context for the messages each week. But I encourage you to read the whole book and get the whole context. And so if you would uh, stay in James chapter 2 with me tonight. As we look to our scripture uh, this weekend in James 2, 1 through 13, which you just heard read, I want to point out some things uh, that perhaps seem obvious, but I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit will make them meaningful to you as we look at this word together. In the beginning of of chapter 2, James directs our attention to this topic of showing partiality. His instruction for the church is simple, show no partiality. Don't show partiality to the rich, but rather love everyone as yourself. That's James's message for the church. When you look at, at verse 1 in chapter 2, we see a command. See, anytime you're reading the word, you should be trying to decipher what it is that you're reading. Sometimes you're reading something that's descriptive. Sometimes you're reading a command. Sometimes you're reading something that's just merely theological and the commands or the implications are to come later. James gives us a very clear command in verse 1. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. After giving this command, he then gives a general example of what he means. Verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. Why you say to the poor man, you, you, you go stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So let's think through James's example in our context today. You know, I don't know um, what fine clothing, uh, when, when you hear that word, what comes to your mind, uh, fine clothing, but I think if you came into a harvest assembly this weekend with a gold ring, nobody would notice. That doesn't stand out as anything unique or, or put you in a different social or economic status than the rest of us, but in this this seemingly poor culture that James is writing to, that was a big deal. You know, I did, I did a wedding one time. I was actually, I didn't know the couple. I was actually filling in uh, for another pastor who had committed. And, and then for, uh, I can't even remember the reason, but they weren't able to, to do the wedding when it came time. And so I, I do the wedding for this couple and everything was, was pretty normal. You know, they spent way too much money for, for this whole thing. And, but everybody was having a good time. And then I started to, to notice everybody talking about this one guy in particular. And this one guy, he was, a, he was a big football player guy. And the reason everybody was talking about him was not because the size of his body, but because the size of his ring. 
He had on, this ha- on his hand this humongous ring, gold ring with diamonds all over this thing. And everybody's asking, what, what, what did he do? How did he get this ring? What, what team was he on? And so I, I asked around a little bit too. It turns out he played, I can't even remember the team, but he played for one of the college football teams that won a national championship. And there's a situation where a ring is getting, getting unusual attention. And I thought of that as, as we were going through this. And, you know, I think at a, at a wedding, now I've been to, I don't know, probably 70, 80 weddings. I've, I've officiated probably around 60 weddings and then all the other ones I've been to in my life. And so when you're at a wedding, you want something interesting to happen. You love it when something unique happens at a wedding, like the wedding I was doing where the bride requested that for her recessional, they play the queen song, Another One Bites the Dust. You want, you want unusual things to happen, or the wedding that I did, it was an outdoor wedding, and one of the groomsmen, in the middle of me doing the ceremony, lets out one of the longest belches I have ever heard in my entire life. And so at a wedding... Distractions are, are welcome, they're, they're entertaining, it gives you something unique to talk about. But when we gather as a church, we shouldn't have these, these types of distractions. When we gather together as a church, we come together to love one another, to worship Christ and to hear his word. And James is describing an assembly where the church is making a big deal out of certain people. There's rich people that are coming in and they're nicely dressed and so everybody kind of rushes over to them and says, oh, why don't you, why don't you come sit over here by me or let's, let's get you up front. We want to give you a place of honor. And then there's, there's poor people coming in who don't look so impressive and the the church, maybe the leaders, maybe just the, the people in the church ignore that person or, or say, you know, I think you need to stand in the back and take a place of dishonor. James is saying this, this shouldn't be. This is not what the church is meant to be. When you come together, show no partiality. Hold to the faith in, Jesus, in our Lord Jesus Christ in a way that shows the same love to everyone regardless of their, their social or economic status. This is what the church is supposed to be. But a church that shows favoritism to the wealthy or powerful and gives them preferential treatment and ignores or humiliates the poor is not a church that reflects the heart of her Savior, Jesus. Jesus so often was, was uh, noted for his action towards the social outcasts. You can recall to your memory the time that he, he, he healed the leper, the one that everybody, I think even, even today, we would want to put out of, out of view somewhere, and this is the type of person that Jesus would seek out. Now, I think this is an area, as we look at this command from James, I think this is an area where we as a church, as a, as a whole, can be commended. I've been a part of Harvest for 13, almost 14 years now, and it's been one of the great joys of being a part of this church to see the love for people regardless of social or economic status. And I think this is an area that we can say we're, we're honoring Christ in this. Nonetheless, there's always room to grow. We're far from perfect in any area. And so let's, let's take a look at James's argument here for showing no partiality. 
His argument is threefold. And if you take out your message application points, we'll look at these together. There are three things, three reasons that he gives us for not showing partiality. The first one, showing partiality rejects God's view of people, James tells us. Showing partiality rejects God's view of people. He says in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? James reminds us that when we pass judgment on people based on the wealth that they have here in this life, we're not viewing people with God's eyes. God sees right past those outer things. And he judges people very differently. There there was then, and, and there still is to some degree today, this idea that people who are wealthy, that people who have nice things are favored by God, and that people who are poor and don't have nice things aren't favored by God. Well, Jesus turns this upside down, (laughs) and he seeks out those who the world considers to be out of God's favor to show them his favor, to show them his love and his mercy. James's point is this, that God has chosen many who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom. Likewise, many people who are wealthy in this current state will be rejected by him at the final judgment. He's saying his judgment is not based on whether you're wealthy or, or powerful or, or, or attractive. His judgment is based on very different things. He looks at the heart. It's important for us to remember that every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being, even the ones that we can find nothing else lovable in them, we should remind ourselves this is a person whom God created in his image. As marred as that image of God might be by their sin, Every human being still bears that image and can at any moment be born again. That's how we should view people. Not, as, not, not the way the world does, but people as people who are created in his image. Because God shows no partiality to the rich or to the poor or to the powerful or to the powerless. John 724 says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And Romans 2.11 says, for God shows no partiality. Job 34 says, the rich and the poor are all the work of his hands. Are you getting the picture here? God shows no partiality to someone based on their wealth or lack thereof. He has created them both. Abraham was wealthy. Jesus was poor. Paul said, I I know what it is to have everything that I need and I know what it is to be without and, and I'm focusing on just being content no matter what state I'm in. You have to love the story of David's selection as as king when we think about this topic of seeing people with God's eyes. 
In 1 Samuel 16, the Lord tells the prophet Samuel to go and to anoint a new king to replace Saul, who at that time was the king over Israel. He was still the king. Saul didn't know there was a new king being anointed, but, but God had made it clear to Samuel and to Saul that God was removing the kingship from Saul and going to be giving it to someone else. So he tells Samuel to go and to, to find this new king to anoint to be Saul's successor. And, and Saul's, or, I'm sorry, Samuel's a little nervous about this. He doesn't want Saul to find out about it, but he obeys and he goes and he finds, finds this man named Jesse. And he asked, he asked Jesse if he could see his sons. And that's where we'll pick up. I'll, I'll go uh, to verse 6 of 1 Samuel 16. You can just listen. I don't believe there's going to be slides for this, so just listen as I read this story. This is in reference to Jesse's sons. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So here's, this, here's Jesse's first son, Eliab, who apparently was impressive to look at. He looked like a king. He looked like the type of man that you wanted to follow. And Samuel was so excited, he says, surely the, the Lord's anointed is before him. And God says, do not look at his appearance, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, another one of his sons, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Now you can imagine Jesse's confusion. He thought, I, I've raised some good sons here. Some sons that, that if you're looking for a king, look no further. These are the men that you want to pick from. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Jesse doesn't even think to bring David in. He's so convinced that this man, that, this, that his son David is not what the people want in a king and, and what you would think of when you're looking for a king that he doesn't even think to bring him in to introduce him to Samuel. He leaves him out in the field with the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, like, like Dave Lusk, beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. But this is a great story, because out of it comes this, this important line where, where the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Let that be our mantra for viewing each other. Let's stop looking at each other the way the world does. 
Let's stop judging each other by what we see on the outside and let us make an effort to see as God sees, to see what is on the inside, for the Lord looks on the heart. There should be no partiality among Christians. View everyone, this is our call to view everyone, regardless of outward appearance, regardless of their social status, with love and acceptance. That's what God calls us to. He calls us to to stop treating some people as better than others based on, on what we see on the outside and to view everyone in the church with love and acceptance. Paul says to the Corinthians, in, in chapter 1, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Understand God's agenda here. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. I mean, think about it. God chose us. (laughs) He didn't, he didn't choose the best of the best. He chose us. As humbling as that might be, he has, he has purposefully sought out people who, who, in many cases, really have, have nothing to boast in, who have no claim to fame, and he has exalted the lowly to the highest of places by making us a part of his kingdom. This is one of the ways that God turns the ways of the world upside down. He reverses the order. There's this theme in the Gospels of of the kingdom of heaven reversing things. And one of the things that one of the ways that he does that is by choosing the poor, by choosing the needy, and exalting them within his kingdom. If you ever watched, well, I'm sure you've, I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure you've experienced it. You know, when we're kids and we're getting ready to play a game of kickball or you know, pick up basketball or some sport, usually what happens is you take the two most talented kids and you say, "Okay, you guys are captains." And we do that because we don't want those two to end up on the same team because it's not fair to the rest of us. But we say, "You guys are captains, so you pick." who you want to be on your team. And it starts out kind of exciting and they're like, hey, I want you and then I want you and I want you. And then, you know, they kind of get to the end of the group and it's like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want you, but, you know, I don't have a lot to pick from here. And, and sometimes it gets so bad that you'll have like 12 kids and you're down to the last two and they'll say, well, hey, let's just play five on five. You, you guys, you can play next time. This is not how Jesus operates he doesn't pick the most talented or the most athletic the most impressive sometimes he he picks the ones that nobody else wants the ones that nobody else would ever choose and he says i want you to be on my team 
you're going you're gonna to play with me. And those kids, you know, and you get to be on the winning team. You get to be on Jesus' team. And you get to be with the, the play alongside of the one who's better than, than everybody else. And, and now your boasting is not, hey, I was, I was so good that Jesus wanted me on his team. It's what a great captain he is. What, what, a, what a great king he is that he would choose me. And that's, that's God's plan. That we wouldn't boast in ourselves, as, as Paul says. God chose what, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That should be our agenda as well. If that's what he's doing, if that's what he's up to, then how can we reflect that in how we live? How can we reflect that within the church? What James tells us, he says, don't show partiality. Don't treat the, the rich or the powerful with, with certain uh, favor. And then and say to the lowly, you can stay here if you want, but sit in the back. So we must view people through God's eyes as loved and created by him, regardless of what is seen on the outside or how the world sees them. So that's, that's one Seeing, seeing people the way God sees them. The next thing, showing partiality undermines God's sovereignty. This is the next thing that James points us to. I'll give you a second to write that down before the next slides pop up. Showing partiality undermines God's sovereignty. Then it says in verse 6 of James 2, But you have dishonored the poor man. James is continuing his argument against showing partiality. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? When we show partiality, we're we're playing a game. We're playing a political game, aren't we? Oftentimes when we show partiality to certain people, it's, it's motivated by a desire to have them reciprocate the favor, to somehow pay us back. And that's why we show partiality to the rich or to the powerful, hoping that they'll use their wealth or their power to do something good for us. This undermines God's sovereignty because it's not the rich and the powerful who are in control. It's God, the creator of all wealth, the creator of the universe, the master of none other than himself. He is the one that determines our path. And so to show partiality, to seek to gain something by, by doing favors for, for other people in this sense is a rejection of God's sovereignty. James points out that in spite of their efforts to gain favor the favor of the rich, it is the rich who often become the ones who oppress them. This is the irony that James wants them to see. Yeah, you know, you guys have these rich people come in and you show them favor, you put them in, in the best seats, and how do they repay you? They drag you into court and sue you and take more from you to add to their excessive wealth. You think that, that by showing favor to certain people, you're going to get ahead. And in reality, the opposite happens. They come and they take from you. 
Your efforts have, pu- have proven to be futile in the sense that, that by seeking to get ahead, you have actually allowed them to take advantage of you. Instead of trusting in the God who is and who rules to guide and to bring into your life what he wants you to have, to take you to the places he wants you to go. Furthermore, many of these rich oppressors have proven to be blasphemers. They've even made a mockery of the faith of these Christians. They mock their Savior and their faith in him. So James says, instead of showing this partiality, how about we just trust in God? How about we just let him guide us and let him lead us to where he wants us to be? Let him open the doors instead of playing political games with people. How about you just love everybody and allow God to be the God who is in control? I find Joseph's life very helpful on this point. If you want to read a story in the Old Testament that is just absolutely about God's sovereignty, you have to consider the life of Joseph. Joseph's life is one full of, of at times, unbelievable fortune in terms of the, the incredible things that happen in his life, and then at other times, incredible uh, misfortune. And then depending on where you enter in his story, you might think, man, God just really loves this guy, or God's got something against him. Joseph, when he was a, when he was a young man, when he was a teenager, he lost everything, including his family. His brothers sold him into slavery, But God was with him as he was sold into slavery and brought him into the house of an important Egyptian named Potiphar. And Potiphar, in Genesis 39, it says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. This young boy who was sold as a slave when he was a teenager, he becomes a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master, His master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And so here's one instance, one part of Joseph's life where we see great fortune. God blesses Joseph in a big way. He took something that was very bad, being, being sold as a slave, and he actually exalted Joseph so that he became a successful man. But then the tables turn again, and Joseph is wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife of coming on to her, and, and, he gets, and Potiphar gets Joseph thrown into prison. So he, he has a good life at home, uh, with his dad and his brothers, and he, he's, things are going well. His brothers turn on him, sell him as a slave, but then God exalts him to this, uh, this position in Potiphar's house, and then he, he brings him a whole way back down. He, he has him thrown into prison, and yet we see the cycle repeat itself. In prison, Joseph is found to be a very faithful and a and, uh, good man, and so he's exalted within the prison. They actually put him in charge of the other prisoners. And things, you know, I guess you could say things start to go okay again for Joseph. But he's still in prison. And when he's in prison, he finally sees a chance at deliverance. There are a couple of guys thrown into prison with him who are very close to, to Pharaoh. 
and they have these dreams and, and they're asking for somebody to interpret their dreams. And Joseph receives from God the interpretation of their dreams. And he tells them the interpretation of their dreams. One of their, one of their dreams actually is a sign that they're going, one of them is going to die but the other one is going to be placed back into um, Pharaoh's service. And so he's going to get out of jail and go back into the service of Pharaoh. He says to that man, he says, when you, when you get out of prison and you're serving Pharaoh again, would you just remember me? This is Joseph's chance at deliverance. So the guy, just as, as God had revealed to Joseph, he gets out of prison and he's back into Pharaoh's service, but he forgets Joseph. He forgets all about him. And, and so Joseph remains in prison until one day Pharaoh has a dream. And he's greatly disturbed by this dream. And of course, he's Pharaoh. He's a powerful man. He's got all these people around him. And so he's, he starts asking for someone to interpret his dream. But nobody can interpret Pharaoh's dream. And finally, this man who was in prison with Joseph says, I remember what I've done wrong. I was in prison with this guy and I had a dream and he told me exactly what my dream meant and then it, it came true. And I was supposed to, when I got out, I was supposed to tell you about him and I forgot about him until now. And Pharaoh says, bring me this man, Joseph. And so Joseph goes and he interprets Pharaoh's dream and the dream, it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy that, that God reveals to Joseph that there's coming a great famine in the land of Egypt and the surrounding area. And so Pharaoh says, you, you seem to be a very competent man. I'm going to put you in charge of making sure um, that we get through this famine. So he puts Joseph in charge, and Joseph begins to store up all of this food, so much so that when the famine hits, there's not only enough food in Pharaoh's kingdom to, to feed all of Egypt, but that the people and the surrounding nations start to come to Egypt and say, what do we have to do to get some food? And, the, and Pharaoh's kingdom actually expands and grows through this. And Joseph becomes the second in command over all of Egypt. God, again, blesses him. And as these people are coming to Egypt and asking for food, there comes this group of brothers and they come to Joseph, and they don't recognize Joseph. He's, he's, he looks Egyptian now, I guess. He probably had makeup on or something. And, and Joseph immediately recognizes the, these as his brothers. And it's a, long, it's a long, very interesting story. You can read all about it in Genesis. But he eventually, uh, he eventually reveals himself to them. He eventually show, exposes who he is. And he feeds them, of course. And then, you know, the whole family comes and they live in the abundance that Joseph has stored up for the Egyptians. But the, the reason I tell you this story is because of all of these things that happen in Joseph's life, all of the ups and downs. And all, and all of this is the result of one thing. And it's not Joseph playing political games. It's not Joseph kissing up to the rich to get favors. In fact, when he tried to do that, it, it didn't even work. He tells us exactly what it is that caused all of this to happen. His brothers are afraid once they realize who he is. They're afraid that once their father dies, he's going to have them killed because of what they did to him. And they come to, them, come to him and explain this, and he says to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
to bring, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What I love about the story of Joseph is he looks back over his life and he sees, he sees the incredible highs and the incredible lows and he says, God did that. It was God. It was God's hand that you sold me into slavery. That was actually part of his plan so that I would be here today. It was God's hand that Potiphar looked on me with favor. And it was God's hand that I went to prison. And it was God's hand that Pharaoh had this dream and needed an interpreter. And that God gave me the interpretation of that dream. When we show favoritism... We're undermining God's sovereignty. We're saying, I've got to make something happen here. I've got to get something done. I've got to get some favors that I can cash in later. The reality is is that it's God who's in control. Remember God's sovereign control over the events of your whole life. That everything that happens to you, good or bad, is His hand. And He can cause anybody to do anything in your favor at any time. He has that kind of sovereign control. Therefore, you don't need to make these kinds of things happen. And so one of the things we see with these Christians that James is writing to when they're showing favoritism, they seem to be trying to get a little something back. They want to honor certain people so that they'll use their power, their money, their influence, their whatever to repay them at some point. As Christians, we can just stop all of that nonsense right now. We can just trust in God. We can believe that whatever He wants to happen with our lives, good or bad, is going to happen because of His sovereign control. So James has shown us that showing partiality, one, rejects God's view of people. That we're not looking at people the way He looks at them. The next thing he shows us is that it undermines God's sovereignty. That we're not viewing our lives and the events of our lives through the proper lens, which is the lens of his sovereign hand. But thirdly, and most importantly, showing partiality violates the law of love for one another. This is James's most important argument. That showing partiality violates the law of love for one another. It's the biggest problem with the sin of partiality. It completely violates the central and foundational command to Christians to love each other. He says in verse 8, If you really fulfill the, the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. We have this this supreme law as Christians that we are to love God and love each other. And so when we do that, we're doing well. But when we show partiality, we're not loving each other. We're not even loving the rich that we're showing the partiality to. We're kissing up to them as he's already shown us. We're setting ourselves up to become a mockery to them. We're not loving each other, and we're certainly not loving the one whom we said to, why don't you stand over there? Why don't you sit at my feet? In the New Testament, this law to love one another takes a very central focus, both in Jesus' teaching 
and, and Paul and other New Testament authors. Let me show you a couple of places. Matthew 22. Someone comes up to Jesus and asks him this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Paul said in Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in Romans, in, uh, Romans 13, he says, Owe no one anything except for love to, to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. This is the supreme command to Christians on how we should treat each other. Love each other as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your enemies as you would love yourself. Showing partiality is not loving each other. And when we gather together to worship in Christian assembly, instead of trying to recreate the world's pecking order that's based on money or noble birth or by how attractive you are or how much power you have or any of those things, instead of trying to recreate that in here amongst ourselves, we should just love each other. We should treat each other as we want to be treated, regardless of, of what's on the outside, regardless of your, your social economic status in the world. Love is the perfect command because all other commandments are fulfilled by love. Love always does the right thing. This is how God wants his church to look. And James reminds us of this by commanding us not to show partiality. When I was a teenager and Christ saved me, I, I got saved. I, when I got saved, I was alone. I was in my bedroom and it was just, it was just me and Jesus. He, he, he just brought me to my knees and drew me to himself and he saved me. But I knew as soon as I got saved, I needed to get into a church. And so the very next Sunday, I went to church. And I went to my, at the time, my sister was going to a church uh, it, was just, it was just a few blocks down the road. I'd been there many times before. At one point, my family uh, went to that church together years before uh, I came to Christ. And so I was like, why not? I'll just go to this church. I knew I knew some people there. And I, and I walked in, and I can't remember if it was the first Sunday that I went, but it was very early on of me attending uh, this church as a Christian. Uh, I saw this, this girl that I knew from school, and she was hanging out with all the teens at the church. And they used to sit, all the teens at this church used to sit up in the balcony in the back row because they just loved being at church, you know. So, uh, and, and she saw me, and I remember what she said. She looked at me, and she said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, this is great. Warm welcome. Thank you. So I decided right then I did not want to sit with my peers because that was not welcome with them. So I sat down front, I sat, or sat down on the main floor with the adults, and again, I can't remember if it was that same week or if it was, but it was very early on, one of the first couple weeks that I went there, I went to find a seat and there was, there was an adult couple in the church that knew me from, from um, being there before. 
And they looked at me and they smiled and said, we are so glad you are here. I'll never forget that. I don't even remember that other girl's name. I don't know who, I can't, honestly can't remember who it was. We obviously didn't build a real friendly relationship after that. But I'll never forget that couple smiling and making me feel welcomed like I was supposed to be there. In fact, they would later go on uh, to attend here. Uh, and, and, and when I came here and was the youth pastor here, they were actually youth leaders in the youth ministry. And still to this day, every time I see them, they smile at me and make me feel loved and welcomed in this church. That's how it should be. I can remember another time, not too long after that, we started going to another church with my mom. And um, there was, there, this church was a little bit different. All the teens sat down front. They literally sat in the front row, which I thought was really cool, but I, was, I didn't know how to approach them. Um, I was still very young Christian, and I was coming from a very different lifestyle um, before becoming a Christian, and they seemed very different than me. And so I didn't really know how to get in with them or how to approach them. And, and I'll never forget the one Sunday when this guy who looked to be about my age came up to me, and he was kind of nervous too because, you know, he, he didn't know me either. And it's always, you know, sometimes a little, especially when you're a teenager, you're just insecure and, you know, approaching somebody new. And he said, hey, we have youth group on Sunday nights. Would love it if you'd just come back tonight and hang out with us. <laughs> and I came back that night and I got plugged into that youth group. And that's through that youth ministry, God called me into full-time ministry. And I'll tell you, I'll never forget those, those experiences. I don't remember a lot of things about that long ago in my life, to be honest. But I remember when, when somebody treated me as if they didn't want me there and I I sure remember when somebody made me feel welcomed and loved. That's how we should be. That's what James is calling us to, that we would treat others in this way. And and that's my point uh, in this message, that it doesn't matter what we see on the outside. We should treat each other without partiality, rich or or poor or or whatever, you know, powerful or powerless, or, or it doesn't matter. We should treat each other with love, that we should treat each other the way we want to be treated. Let me finish our passage so we can get uh, through the rest of this. Verse 10, James goes on to say, Forever keeps the, law, the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's understood that under the Old Testament law, if you break one law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. That's what he's referring to. You don't have to be a murderer or an adulterer to be considered guilty under the law. You can sin in any which way, and you're considered guilty under the law, deserving of punishment. So that's the, that's the point he's making. But he says, for judge, and then he says, for judgment without mercy, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. This is a warning. Remember, he starts with a command. He gives an example. Then he makes his case. Now he's warning us. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. This is the last thing on your map. Faith 
that works treats others with love and mercy, not with partiality and judgment. Faith that works treats others with love and mercy, not with partiality and judgment. Let that be our guiding rule. As we treat one another, not with judgment. Because if we judge each other, we will be judged without mercy. But if we show mercy, we will be judged with mercy. That is a beautiful and foundational truth of the Christian faith. That if we show mercy, we'll be judged with mercy. And isn't that what we need? So in closing, let me just, let me just speak to a specific group of people here. If the church has failed you in this regard, if, the, if you have come into this church or any other church that goes by the name of Jesus Christ and people have judged you with partiality, I want to say a couple of things. One, Jesus loves you with a perfect love. That just has to be your foundation for everything in life. Two, other, you know, other Christians, we're trying, but we're not perfect. We don't always get it right. But three, you need to work through this, and you need to be the person you want others to be. This is not an excuse, in other words, to be bitter or to be resentful or to not be involved in your church. And, and I think so many people use this as an excuse. They go into a church, they don't like the way they get treated. They leave the church and say, I'm not going to church anymore. I still believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to church anymore. And the devil laughs. Don't do that. And I realize I'm probably preaching to the choir here because you're all here, but you might face this temptation one day that if you're mistreated to, to run from the church and say, well, that's not the place for me. Instead, what you need to do, because you're just as much of a part of the church as anybody else, including the pastors or the elders or the deacons, you need to be the person that you want others to be to you. So look around. Who's not being included? Seek them out. Did you, did you notice somebody walked in and they sat down and nobody said hi to them? Well, I guess you know what you need to do. Get up and go say hi to them. Smile and say, I'm so glad you're here. What a beautiful thing to do. If, if we as a church would just do more of this, if we would treat each other with the kind of love that we like to be treated with, because mercy triumphs over judgment. And so lastly, maybe there's some folks here this weekend who you, you, what you need to do is you need to receive the mercy of God in the form of salvation. You need to receive Jesus to be your Savior so that you can be judged, not as it says in verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy but that you can be judged with the mercy that Jesus offers. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.